What on earth is going on here? You girls should be ashamed of yourselves. Waving guns around like that. What kind of a joke is this? This kind, Grandma. to insane passion that consumed his whole being when he felt the touch of her flesh and another driven mad because he couldn't touch her. And so he looked way out, topless and bottomless, beatniks, acid heads, staring, leering at the undulating naked curves, their oversexed manhood, straining for the touch of her flesh. Every season, I profile a director that a lot of people might not know much about, starting with Doris Wishman in season one, William Castle in season two, and Russ Meyer in season three. This week, I'm profiling a filmmaking couple, Michael and Roberta Finlay. The Finleys were an odd couple that made some of the weirdest, sickest underground roughies and sex films throughout the 60s and 70s until Roberta graduated to super violent horror movies of the 80s. They worked under a variety of different names with a variety of different underground filmmakers and porn actors and actresses, and their story gets weirder by the minute. Today, I present The Finleys, Sexploitation's First Couple. This is Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is normally not discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and the school's the other. We discuss everything from S&M Nazis to murderous children to big-ass insects. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hi, Tom. Hey, Slate. How are you? I'm good. Great. Good. This is uh, episode six, right? So this is, well, it's, I guess, I don't know, 30-something. I've lost track. But anyway, we're midway through season four. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think it's going so far? I like the season. I mean, I like all of our seasons, you know, but I think it's a solid season. I hope the listeners enjoy it. Yeah, sure. So let's see. We're pretty much on track, right? So this is my first uh, filmmaker that I'm doing of the season, and I do that every season. You've already done your revenge, Revenge from the Grave, last Last week. And we have some listener suggestions coming up, too. So I think your next one is a listener suggestion. It certainly is, yeah. Which is really exciting. I think I'm taking... I might do hippies. I I think I'm going to take it from you. You're going to steal hippies? from me yeah it's either that or i was we were just talking about you know could i do an episode on bad clowns i might do bad clowns go to hell that's like yeah i mean the title's great i feel like that's sort of redundant yeah you know just that clowns are awful anyway i mean everybody hates clowns now it's funny how that moved from like clowns are great to all of a sudden everybody hates them yeah that's true the only thing is i probably have to wait until the new it comes out and it doesn't come out till september so Mm. i'll probably won't be able to get it in time yeah maybe not 
Hmm. So. so it's been a good season so far. And yeah. we kind of pushed a couple things off till season five. I think I'm going to do John Waters. and Yeah, yeah. I've got some dark darkness coming for season five. So I'm happy about that. Very excited. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm excited about this topic. I don't know, you know anything about, about the film. Nothing. I might know some of the films you may mention. The filmmaking duo, I don't know shit. I dug real deep for this one. This oh, is wow. probably my deepest cut so far because I knew nothing going into this about it. You know, we had talked a little bit about Snuff. And then you actually gave me a movie by Roberta Finlay, but you probably don't know what it is yet. So I it'll don't. be a little surprise for you coming up. I'm excited about that. All right. So why did I choose the Finlays? They come up all the time when we're talking about sexploitation, but they never really broke into the mainstream. And they also didn't really promote themselves or their films, as opposed to somebody like a Herschel Gordon-Lewis or Russ Meyer, very much out there trying to get their movies to make some money. Sure. They were a bit more like the Doris Wishmans of the world. They quietly made small fringe films that made just enough to get to the next movie. Yeah. You know. Okay. They never tried to win Oscars or even make anything crazy different. Just films that would, you know, make a little bit of money. They just tried to make a living. <laughs> off of making right. sex films, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in that time, they actually ended up making some pretty influential films almost by accident, whether they were roughy, sickies, hardcore movies, or even softcore, or even snuff. Right. And they were a married couple. So that's pretty epic for the time as well. Yeah. So let's start with Roberta. Okay. Roberta Finlay was born in a pretty secluded, not so great Jewish neighborhood in the Bronx. Her parents wanted her to be a concert pianist. So she went to college early. She was super, super smart. Mm -hmm. And she played some music on the side. One of those side gigs was playing accompaniments on screenings of silent films where a man named Michael Finlay was exhibiting them. Oh, wow. He was 10 years older and they started dating. They eventually moved in together until Roberta's mother insisted they get married since it was technically illegal at the time to, you know, be living together. Right. So they married and began working in the underground film scene while Roberta finished college. Together with co-director John Amaro, they made their first film, Body of a Female, in 1964. Huh. I want to give you a little context on the calendar of where the Finlays fit in film history. Okay. Michael was born in 1938 and Roberta was born in 1948. So they both grew up in the production code era. Psycho came out in 1960, around the time that Roberta was 13, and pretty much began the decline of the production code, although it would take a few more years for it to fall apart. This set the stage for indie adult films, mostly nudie cuties, which we've talked about before. Uh, Among them were Doris Wishman's Nude on the Moon and Russ Meyer's The Adventures of Lucky Pierre, both from 61. See how I'm trying to tie in all my other filmmakers? Yeah, that was that era. Yeah, it it works good. Good job. These were both nature films or, or nudie cuties, movies where there's nudity but absolutely no sex. They're usually comedies since the laws were unclear at the time and it was light fare. It was less likely to get like blown up by the censors or, right. or you know, or obscenity charges. Yeah. Right around 1963 was when Michael and Roberta started dating. That was also the time that William Castle was making Straight Jacket with Joan Crawford. Oh, yeah. And then came Blood Feast in 1963, which was the first ever gore flick. Oh, yeah. But there's no sex in Blood Feast, just a lot of blood and guts. This was just about the time that Roberta and Michael started to think about making movies, and their first film was a roughie. Oh, great. So when we say roughie in terms of sexploitation, it's basically the exploitation of women as sexual figures that men take physical advantage of over, usually sexually, but also with physical violence. I said in a previous episode that a roughie is where people would do harm to females, and that's basically it. But I'm going to go further to define it by saying it's kind of the combination of sex and violence that's really
really the innovative part here when you talk right. about firsts in film. Now, whether Body of a Female or Russ Meyer's Lorna or Olga's House of Shame was the first Ruppy, we'll, we'll probably never really know. Sure. We do know that Body of a Female was a Ruffie, and it predated Doris Wishman's Bad Girls Go to Hell and Dave Friedman's The Defilers by at least a year. Okay. Body of a Female is about a stripper played by Roberta Finlay. Her name was Anna Riva because they all used fake names. Sure. She's kidnapped by a drifter and taken to the home of a wealthy pervert. The pervert proceeds to strip her and beat her with a whip. She escapes, and he has to track her down and kill her before she can notify the police. That's all that the internet really says about the movie, <laughs> and it's lost forever. Okay, so there's no copies, nothing. There's no copies of okay. them. But luckily, there are two long-form interview podcasts with Roberta Finlay that you can listen to. It's, you know, episodes of podcasts. Yeah. The first one is a, a little bit better quality, and it's from our friends at the Rialto Report. Oh, great. I actually shouted it out last season on Facebook. It's called Roberta Finlay, A Respectable Woman, and it's a really, yeah, it's a really really, really great episode. You know, it's long form. It's about an hour and a half. The second is a little older and the quality isn't as good, but it's from a podcast called Third Eye Cinema, which I'd never listened to before. Okay. Both are great listens. She answers all the questions she can remember, but from the early days, she's a little choppy on memory. Yeah. Either way, there's really not a lot about Michael and Roberta Finlay on the internet. So these interviews were really helped me kind of answer a lot of questions because of course you're hearing it from her. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is something that was super, super important to me. She remembers nothing about body of a female but hmm. luckily there's also an episode of the Rialto report where they talk to John Amaro who co-directed the movie with right. Michael and he remembers everything oh great so I'm gonna tell you kind of what he remembers about it okay the main points are that they both wrote directed produced and shot it together as partners that's John and Michael Roberta starred as did John Amaro's brother Clem he John Amaro and Clem like went on to make other movies and I might talk okay. about them a little bit at some point but they had to be really careful in the filming because nudity wasn't really allowed at the time. So right. it was a sexy movie, but they had to cover Roberta's nipples like to, to make sure that, you know, they weren't in there because they'd get busted. Yeah. They obviously That's didn't bullshit. worry about like the production code whatsoever. They knew that this was never going, this is just a fringe film. Yeah. When they were done and they cut it, they tried to get the score. It was all non-sync sound and tried to get the audio in it, but nobody would do it because they were all afraid that they would get arrested for really? the footage because it was, at the time, it was in that weird legal spot of where it was like, is this allowed or is this against the law? But couldn't they just like do a Alan Smithy type of like, yeah, you pay me to do sound they or whatever? They did, yeah. Okay. But like, you know, if you were going to take your film to be like scored, they would watch the footage and just be like, we're not doing this. This, oh. this could be against the law. Gotcha. You know? They finally got it mixed and after a few strikeouts they found someone to distribute it it premiered in philly then times square and dc and so on john amaro sold his share eventually to the distributor but since there was no future for films like this like it could never go on tv and (laughs) you know vhs didn't exist yeah a lot of these types of films just kind of disappeared forever yeah roberta said in the interview that it's somewhere behind a wall in brooklyn that basically somebody put up a wall with all the films back there and she doesn't (laughs) has no idea where it is i like the idea of a film tomb yeah me too i, I want to hit a wall and all these like old trashy ass movies fall out can I, you that imagine would be, I'd love i that. would fall over and die that right. this is like my dream come true unfortunately if that actually happened they'd be so deteriorated you probably couldn't use them but i yeah. still like the idea yeah but i mean periodically you know something will happen in like in france in somebody's attic they'll pull out something and it's like you know the original That's print true. of a charlie chaplin lost movie forever and you're just like oh my god it must be worth like a zillion dollars you know i feel like that happened with something like uh, metropolis or something where there was like the footage that was cut out was in somebody's like trunk yeah and they added it back in for like a criterion or some shit like that but yes 
you're right. It, it happens where some private collector had some of that footage or reels of it and locked it away and died. And when they went to go through his shit, they found like this lost film. Yeah, that's know? like boner material. That's like the I that's like that the best porn movie ever for yeah. me. That's like Indiana Jones shit for me. You know yeah. what I mean? Like finding the lost, totally. whatever. Yeah, that's great. Anyway, Body of a Female made some money, so Roberta and Michael set out to make more films, but without John Amaro this time. Okay. The next four films would be similar to Body of a Female and would be released over the next couple of years. There was The Sin Syndicate, <laughs> Satan's Bed, Ooh, yeah. Take Me Naked, Ooh, I like that. and A Thousand Pleasures. That's great. Yeah. Roberta is listed as a producer in all of the films, and she stars in most of them, but at least has roles in the ones that she doesn't star in. Right. The kind of crazy thing is, is that Satan's Bed stars a young Yoko Ono before she met John Lennon. Really? It was her first film. Wow. So the plot, according to the internet, this brutal drug drama, actually two films edited together, features Yoko Ono as the fiancé of a drug pusher who wants to go straight. His supplier kidnaps Ono in order to keep him selling dope, while in an unrelated story, three black-clad addicts terrorize women. So it sounds like there was some footage of Yoko Ono. They were just like, what are we going to do with this shit? And Mm -hmm. so they got Michael to film this trashy, roughy footage to make the two films, to smash it it together and and be able to release it. A film about the depravity of our society. Three youths on a wild sex spree and the girls that they desire. For them, sex wasn't enough. They were after every kick they could get or give. Roberta says Yoko wasn't nude or really aware that she was in a sexploitation film at all. Interesting side note, three years after Satan's Bed, Yoko and John Lennon made an indie experimental art house film called Rape, which is 75 minutes of a woman being chased down the street that was supposed to be a comment on their lives with the paparazzi. It's kind of interesting. So it wasn't like Yoko Ono made this film and never made an indie weird art film again, like she and John Lennon actually made one, you know, that was kind of similar. The other films were kind of the same. It was usually seedy people doing seedy things with no sync sound and Michael Finlay reading lengthy sicko monologues over top of the footage since they couldn't afford a tape recorder or a sound guy. But the cool thing that started happening was that since they were both in the movies, Roberta started holding the camera to shoot Michael's scenes when he was in the film. He taught her how to hold it still and focus. He was all about lenses, but didn't really understand lighting. Right. So she started to learn about lighting and then started shooting the films herself. Oh, wow. As this was happening and she started getting more comfortable behind the camera, Michael was writing weirder, sicker, but also kind of more commercial films. Like they made a little bit more sense as he got better at it. Okay. And he was finding other people to star in the movies and, and kind of help out with it. Yeah. She was better behind the camera than in front, so she started filming everything, which makes her, as far as anyone knows, the first female DP, you know, director of photography ever. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I know. Really interesting, right? Huh. When they ask her about it on the interview, she's kind of like, ah, oh, whatever. I don't care. Like, right. it wasn't, I just did what I had to do. Gotta but, get paid, motherfucker. Right. You know? but, but when you look back, and I actually found, like, the first Hollywood DP, she wasn't until the 70s. So, hmm. like, I actually think Roberta was the first female DP. Nice. Yeah, it's cool. The Finleys are most known for their three films known as the Flesh series, which are mainstays in black and white 60s exploitation history. Okay. Those films, The Touch of Her Flesh, mm. The Curse of Her Flesh, huh. and The Kiss of Her Flesh, 
all credit Roberta as being the DP, although she has a hard time remembering this time. Michael Finley's films are a little offensive even now, and she may not want anyone to know that she helped develop them beyond just being in a few and being in the credits. Okay. Still as Anna Riva. But someone shot these, because at the time, the lighting and cinematography was considerably better than most of the similar sexploitation films at the time. It was miles past Doris Wishman and Herschel Gordon-Lewis. Oh, okay. So it looks like her style. So yeah. I'm pretty sure it is. Huh. The rough plot of The Touch of Her Flesh... A weapons dealer is involved in an automobile accident after catching his stripper wife with another man. He recovers but has an eye patch and goes on a killing spree, bumping off exotic dancers and hookers while plotting revenge on his wife. They call him One Eye. It was like ran for yeah. the lives. It was nice. He watched her strip, his morbid excitement uncontrollable, and at the height of her passion, his perverted lust struck deep within her. of her flesh what does it mean to the adulterous lover what does it mean to the girl who loved another girl best what does it mean to her who enjoys her own body best you will know when you feel the touch of her flesh the touch of her flesh is a little different from some of the other earlier films for two reasons and that's nudity and violence the opening credit sequence is drawn on women's naked bodies at the time, and we see butts and boobs. Nice. Uh, we see nipples and lower torsos, but with a hand in front of the vag, but it's implied. Sure. A few of the butt scenes, you can actually kind of see some bush poking through, you know, the inside of the, you know, yeah, you yeah. can see a little nice. bit coming through. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Got it. So the nudity is much more pronounced than in Body of a Female. Sure. Here's the thing about the touch of her flesh. Some film historians would say it may be the first ever sex slash. Really? Meaning a movie that combines sex, nudity, and gore where a serial killer picks off people one by one. Again, it's hard to tell what the first anything was, but that's crazy if it's true. And the violence wasn't matter of fact. It was really creative. Since the one-eyed slasher was a weapons dealer, he has all types of creative ways to kill these women, which may be one of the first times we ever saw this in a roughie. Of course, Hitchcock and Agatha Christie had been doing this forever, but a serial killer using creative ways of killing people a la Saw and Scream, this may have been the first one. Huh. Touch of Her Flesh was a little sicker than most of the other sickies <laughs> out at the time, so it's a little bit more notable. Yeah. Uh, and these movies exist now. I actually have a DVD with all three of them oh, on really? there. Oh, mm-hmm. really? And did you watch them? I did, uh-huh. I guess we'll talk about that in a bit? Or? Not really, no. I mean, this is kind of the end of, of the Flesh series. They're black and white sex movies. Right. They're not particularly good, but if you're interested in exploitation film, they're really exciting to watch. Well, what about know? the creative serial killer stuff? I mean, is it yeah, creative I mean, for the time? Is it still kind of, oh, that's neat now, or is it just... Not really, no. You know, I mean, they're they're not particularly good movies. Of course. You know, they were just the excitement about it was going to go see something like that on the big screen, as opposed to seeing Mary Poppins. Right. So... They're not good films, but I love exploitation movies. So, you know, I I think they're terrific watches. Yeah. Yeah. The movie did well for the Finlays. So they made two more in the series. Okay. The Curse of Her Flesh and The Kiss of Her Flesh are pretty much the same stories. (laughs) The killer comes back and murders more women. Mm. However, from a quality standpoint, they got better as they went. Sure. Unfortunately for the Finlays, sexploitation was starting to hit the mainstream by this time. Mm -hmm. So films like I Am Curious Yellow and Barbarella were a bit safer than going to Times Square to get a woman, you know, 
know, get smacked around in a theater full of drug dealers and hookers. So they had to kind of up the ante a little bit. Of course, gotta compete. They made some more films together, like The Ultimate Degenerate from 1968, about a nymphomaniac lesbian that answers a personal ad for sex, drugs, and some torture stuff. Woohoo! All Night Rider from 1969, which also appears to be lost forever. Uh-huh. The Closer to the Bone, The Sweeter the Meat, which is the best title ever. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. And Nasadika from 1969 was a bit different. It was a color film, uh, mm-hmm. but it was a lesbian period piece. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Not lesbian period, meaning like their period. I, I okay, knew exactly sorry. what you meant. Sorry. Historical drama about, about lesbians. lesbians right? yeah. A lot of the Finlay stuff around this time was like lesbian themed. They also made Crack Up and Take My Head, both from 1969. <laughs> By the end of the 60s, their marriage was really kind of starting to fall apart. Roberta says in interviews that Michael was really fucked up in real life. He hated his mother, which kind of made sense, considering all of his movies were about mistreating women. She says he wasn't abusive, but that his psychological state wasn't particularly good. Okay. Part of what she believed was because of his strict Catholic upbringing. She was like Jewish. No. He was the type of person that made movies about torturing women so that he didn't really like do it in real life. It's fucked up. Yeah. But they stayed together through the shooting of their probably most famous notorious film, Slaughter, from 1971. I've been waiting for you to get to this Mm -hmm. one. Slaughter was filmed in Argentina and was a cheapy ripoff of the Charles Manson story, as a lot of exploitation films were at the time. They shot it cheap and quick without sync sound and overdubbed it later in post. It was released, but it died quickly at the box office, if it ever made it in the first place. It's a little choppy to know whether this whether this was even ever in a... It was a, barely a th- out. Yeah. It was nothing. It was shelved, and then the name Slaughter was bought off the distributor and then given to the Jim Brown film in 1972. Yeah. So then it sat on the shelves with no title until 1974, when longtime Finlay financer Alan Shackleton got an idea. They'd been working with him before. We've talked about this a few times, but I dug down and found a few more things that you might find interesting interesting about this of course, kind of, of process. Shackleton had been hearing a lot of the tabloid news about real snuff films from South America existing. And since Slaughter was a South American film, he came up with the idea to film a real fake death and capitalize on the snuff craze. So a fake death that looked real. I said right, real right. fake death, but you get it. You get yep. it. So basically the part that fits into a Manson cult story is that the crew of that film, which we obviously never see, get all crazy and murder a girl and film it. Yeah. So that scene was cut into slaughter and played off as it were real. You know all this. Yeah, yeah we talked about that. So he re-released the film as snuff with your favorite tagline filmed in South America. Where life is cheap. So <laughs> fucking offensive, but it's you can get away with that in 75, I guess. Ladies and gentlemen, the bloodiest thing that ever happened in front of a camera. Snuff. This is the true story of four innocent young actresses who thought they were making just another movie, but didn't know they were making the ultimate movie. Snuff. The film that could only be made in South America. Where life is cheap. It was a mega success on the exploitation scene, partly because of the feminist protests, which no one can agree on whether they were actually hired to protest or not. Roberta Finlay says she was called by the protesters and asked to protest with them. She hung up. (laughs) And then the real protesters actually really did start to come out, namely women against pornography, who were still trying to shut down the golden age of porn. Bullshit. But an investigation was launched to make sure the scene was actually faked, which of course it was, and exposed in a Variety article in 1976. 
1996. But the film continued to do well even after that, just like Cannibal Holocaust and Blair Witch, you know, a little bit later. So did you actually ever see Snuff? Yes, I managed to find some of it and I watched some of it. I mean, the the movie's terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, but the ending is too. I mean, I could see where it looks cheaper than everything else. It's clearly something that's tacked on. Yeah, yeah. Coming from 40 years after that and kind of seeing what's fake and what isn't, Mm -hmm. it didn't really impress me now that much. Sure. But I can imagine back in the 70s when it looked like, hey, this movie's over with. What's going on? Right. might have been pretty shocking. Yeah, sure. Do you agree? Did you watch it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I always wondered, why didn't they just get Michael Finlay to do that scene? Oh, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Because actually, Slaughter is filmed better than that scene. Yeah, I know, definitely. And I think that's probably because Roberta was, you know, getting pretty good as a DP by this time. Right, right. It's definitely a piece of film history that uh, yeah. is really interesting. I mean, it's a terrible movie. The quality's terrible. The, yeah, all of it's bad. One of the main amateurish. problems is is just like the audio overdubbing and you know Roberta talks about this all of the actors were South Americans their accents were so heavy they had to get English actors to come right. and overdub it it's really obvious you know and yeah. so that's kind of a technical thing that's a little bit hard to watch but anyway there's always been a lot of discussion about whether Alan Shackleton fucked the Finlays over when he recut and released the film with, without their knowledge Right. as Roberta says Michael made a little money after the sale of the title to Paramount and that maybe Michael made money off of Snuff or maybe he didn't she makes it sound like no one wanted slaughter and they had both continued working with Shackleton in some form for a while after. So it sounds like it was kind of lucrative for everyone. Right. Whether they made any money off of it or whether it was just kind of like, well, we made this film and then it sat on the shelves and with no title and now it's not. Now it's out as this different film. Right. Whoa. Who cares? Whatever. Roberta laughs about the whole thing when when she's asked about it. So it doesn't seem like there was any bad blood. It did get quite successful when it was re-released, though. Yeah. She made it sound like they made some money off of it. So Good, good for him. So back to the early 70s, as Michael was off to promote Slaughter, Roberta left him. Yeah. She was done being married, and Michael was getting weirder and weirder. And she wanted to make films on her own. She and Alan Shackleton made a deal. He would do her production and distribution, and she would take a flat fee to direct and cut a film and then hand the movies over to him. She never really saw any money past that flat fee, meaning that if the film did really well, she wouldn't see any box office returns. Right. But it didn't seem to make a difference anyway, since no one but the mob ever saw any box office returns on adult films at the time anyway. Yeah. The flat fee was just easier than trying to keep track of what made money where and, and who had it. Her first film was a 1970s softcore film called The Altar of Lust. See love scenes photographed as never before. A young girl's innocent first love is soon to be corrupted. Who could suspect that this beautiful young woman's sexual drives would soon be perverted? An idyllic rhapsody of love interrupted by the strains of deviation and degeneracy. They bared their souls. Restless in their passion, what could I do? I joined them and began to know the torments of unnatural sex drives. Rising to the heights of sexual extravagance, Vivica learned quickly what lust was all about. Her lover introduced her to the joys and sorrows of an uncontrolled passion. Altar of Lust. The Altar of Lust actually stars Harry Reams before Deep Throat, and yeah. even has an appearance by C. Davis Smith, who was actually Doris Wishman's longtime cameraman. Oh, wow. Isn't it funny how these worlds like all collide? Right. Yeah. Softcore was big at the time and was being shown in adult theaters along with early hardcore porn loops. And she actually made some pretty memorable early softcore porn films. Those films were Rosebud from 1971, <laughs> Teenage Milkmaid from 1972 really? The Clam Digger's Daughter from 1974 <laughs> uh, uh. 
She convinced Alan to make a hardcore film as Deep Throat and The Devil and Mrs. Jones started to hit big. Right. And so her first hardcore film, Angel Number no. 9, in 1974, had some early porn stars like Eric Edwards, who would later go on to be in Debbie Does Dallas. Yeah. And Jamie Gillis, who would be in the pirate porn musical Captain Lust. Do you remember that? Yes. Yo ho ho. Oh, put it in her butt. Put it yeah, in that's her butt. The, mm-hmm. the classic song right. from that musical. Yep. I made that song up, but. Yeah. In the next few years, she pumped out hardcore films like Slip Up, Anyone But My Husband, which you can actually find on X Hamster. That's like a porn, (laughs) kind of like a porn site. I know it's really gross that it's called X Hamster. Yeah, that's weird. Sweet Sweet Freedom, Dear Pam, Sweet Pumpkin, I Love You, Fantasex, Love in Strange Places, and A Woman's Torment. So she was just like knocking out porn films. Fantasex, that's a decent title. Yeah. Unlike Doris Wishman at the time, you know, Doris Wishman hated making the sex movies. Right. And she didn't like the porn. She said they walked out of the room. Roberta Finlay just says she wasn't very good at directing the sex scenes. And sometimes she would have somebody come in and direct it. But she didn't mind. She wasn't against it. She didn't mind it. It didn't gross her out. She did say the only thing she didn't really like was the smell. It's kind of disgusting, but also kind of amazing. Yeah, it's funny. Michael continued to make films as well, and sometimes Roberta would even help him. She left him, but came to help him shoot one of his most famous films, Shriek of the Mutilated from 1974. This is an odd little movie. It's actually about a group of students who travel to a remote island to find a Yeti or a Bigfoot. Oh, nice. The infamous Bigfoot photo had come out a few years earlier, and this was his attempt to exploit that. Roberta shot the whole thing. She doesn't remember much about it other than she constantly had to frame around the Yeti because it was a cheap costume and every time he turned around you could see the zipper up his back. Nice. The abominable snowman, the Yeti, or is it? A scientific expedition that turns into a nightmare for all but a few with the surprise ending of the year. Sometimes it almost sounds like something human. It's the damnedest thing, Ernst. If it isn't a Yeti, I can't imagine what it could be. (laughs) I could see it as it was chewing the flesh of Tom's leg. This is not for the weak. This is truly the Shriek of the Mutilated. Rated R. The surprising thing about Shriek of the Mutilated was actually that the Yeti ended up being a hoax. It was all a plot to get victims for a cannibal ring. It's actually a cannibal movie posing as a Yeti movie. Look at all those layers. Yeah. They were were really interesting filmmakers. (laughs) Michael made a few more films throughout the 70s like Vice Versa, Michael, Angelo, and David, Kiss Today, Goodbye, and Virgins and Heat. But he was really into film lenses, as I mentioned before. And he was busy creating a piece of 3D technology, a dual lens system that could shoot 3D with only one camera as opposed to two. It was super innovative, and he had acquired patents on it. It's actually the system that modern 3D cameras are built on now, but he was cut short while he was trying to sell it. The Finlay story is already kind of bonkers, but yeah. then something even more bonkers happened. What? Michael Finlay was in a crazy, bizarre freak helicopter accident that killed him. Shit. According to the front page of the New York Times, Michael Finlay was on his way to Cannes to promote his new 3D lens. It was his big break, and he was being helicoptered to the airport from the top of the Pan Am building in Manhattan with a few other passengers. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, the helicopter tipped, and the blade broke off. And according to the New York Times, quote, some of the victims were cut to pieces. 
Four people died, including Michael Finlay, and a woman walking home from work was struck by pieces of the blade like as it fell off the roof and died as well. It yeah. was a crazy, gruesome, and really bizarre way to die. That's so fucking strange. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. Yeah, but like they called and they were like, your husband just died and was basically decapitated by a freak helicopter accident. Damn. It's nuts. It's also not the last time that happened in regards to movies. Mm-hmm. We talked about that in, in Dead, Dead on Set. set. Yep. Was that it's Twilight Zone? Twilight Zone, right? Yeah. You can. I watched that online. Yeah, I'm sick. It's, I'm a sick person. No, it's everywhere. On I watched the scene. I'm I not a good too. person. Yeah, I'm also a bad person. Roberta and Michael were never properly divorced, namely because Roberta didn't want to, since she thought someone would want to marry her again, and she hated being married. Yeah, I hear you. So now a widow, she continued to make porn movies under a variety of fake names. Here's a couple of them. Okay. Walter D. Roberts, Bob W. Davis. Robert Norman, Robert W. Brenner, and Robert R. Walters. All kind of weird variations of the same names. really like the Robert part of it, I guess. Remember that people distributing porn were in a lot of danger back then. Harry Reams almost went to jail for being in Deep Throat. I remember that. So a lot of these fake names were created, so in case she needed to ditch the film for legal purposes, she could. She also might have been a little embarrassed, but to be honest, in the next six years after Michael's death, she made some decent hardcore films. Okay. The New York City Woman in 1977 actually starred John Holmes and Georgina Spelvin from The Devil and Miss Jones. Mm-hmm. And it was completely made out of outtakes. One of Roberta's signature moves was to shoot two movies at the same time and get as much coverage as possible. (laughs) Plus, you're kind of only paying the actor for like a day rate, you know, so she's getting two movies for the price of one. But then she would cobble together a third story out of the outtakes, do some voiceovers and cut a third film completely for free. Wow. So she was really good at being able to cobble plots out of outtakes and stuff like that. So yeah, at this time, Roberta was in a pretty serious relationship with Walter Sear, who was a jack of all trades, but was best when it came to sound mixing. He had opened a sound studio in Midtown in 1970, and Roberta says the day she met him, they started being in a relationship. He started helping her with her films. He did all the production management, scheduling, a little bit of DP work while she wrote the scripts and directed. Mm -hmm. They had a decent system by this time, and they were making money. Not just on the distribution, but they were making royalties as well. Right. She pumped out hardcore films like Raw Footage, <laughs> Kinky Tricks, nice. From Holly with Love, Aww. Mystique, Honeysuckle Rose, Private School Girls, and Glitter, not the Mariah Carey version. Uh, and they made all the films with their own money. Roberta says that they were terrible at finding investors. They I never bet. made a penny from funding. Right. So they funded all their own films and made them for their own profit. Life was really good for them. Yeah, I bet. Until... Oh, shit. One of Roberta's most notorious, not in a good way, film is called Shauna, Every Man's Fantasy from 1983. The Shauna was real life porn actress Shauna Grant, who had just starred in her movie Glitter. Okay. She was a very well liked porn actress within the industry, but she was having a pretty bad coke phase at the time. Right. And she killed herself in a hotel room in March of 1983. Hmm. Not wanting to miss an opportunity, Roberta kind of scraped together a documentary exploiting her suicide, where she interviewed members of the porn industry on whether she did it because of porn or not. Then she inserted outtakes of Shauna and even some non-Shauna sex scenes into the movie. Oh, wow. People, especially in the industry, were outraged at this. Yeah. 
you know, at the time, and I don't really know much about this, but, you know, I can speculate. Porn was getting a real bad rap. People mm-hmm. were saying, like, oh, it's encouraging drugs and suicide and the mob and all this stuff. Right. And that was Roberta's industry. So she was a part of that. And she kind of turned around and made this film that that basically made it sound like porn had ruined Shauna's life. And, right. and people were really pissed, you know, well, yeah. especially people in the porn industry that were still trying to make an honest living out of this and, and trying to justify their decision you know to the public who was just saying that this was like this terrible industry yeah and she like busted all that up so they were really really pissed did you did you watch that have you seen that i haven't seen it no okay. it still exists though i figure it would. yeah in the interviews my favorite thing about roberto is she goes i took advantage of a death i'd do it again i thought wow. that was so funny she's like, like she was just like fuck. i do not care i make exploitation movies i make porn movies and i just did what i had to do to like make a buck i don't care wow yeah i love it I'm not here to make friends or yeah. whatever. Yeah. That's great. I mean, it's fucked up, but it's yeah. also kind of great. The porn industry turned on her. Oh, yeah. They felt like she had sold them out completely when they really needed support the most. Yeah. Porn was really struggling in 1983 due to home video mostly, but it went further than just people not wanting to watch porn at theaters. The porn theaters were switching to video projectors since it was a lot cheaper than film projectors. So even the theaters that were still playing porn weren't buying porn films. They were renting or buying VHS tapes at the video store and projecting them for audiences. Mm -hmm. It was a full devastating blow to the adult film industry. You know, a blow, yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. Obviously, as seen in movies like Boogie Nights. And Roberta kind of took this as a sign the porn industry shunned her home video was kind of shunning her whole industry yeah so she turned on porn and basically said i'm not going to do it anymore i'm going to use this as a sign but i'm going to accept home video you know as a lot of people kind of weren't doing yeah and found success in something much different she started making horror films oh good after the success of halloween and friday the 13th roberta decided to try something different namely making knockoffs of popular horror films oh great and some of them weren't that bad her first one was The Oracle from 1985. Heard of that. I've yeah. seen it. The Oracle was probably supposed to be about a killer Ouija board, <laughs> but they, of course, couldn't afford the rights. So instead, it's a ceramic hand that holds a pen. And once everyone like puts their hand on it, like the Ouija board, it writes things mysteriously on paper. You know, she was just kind of like, I can't use the Ouija board. I'll make a moan. something else, you know. Was the game itself called The Oracle? I don't remember what it was called. I'm not even sure it was really a game. They found it like in a deceased woman's house. So it wasn't like a game that you buy at a store. It was like a one of a kind thing. It was like a monkey's paw type of thing. Jennifer's new apartment was vacant, but it wasn't empty. An ancient device of unspeakable power awaits her. She took dead people, ghosts, and one day, she she just disappeared. You move into her apartment. Jennifer was desired, and then seduced. Now the horror begins, and no one can stop it. The Oracle isn't as bad as it should be, probably because the gross-out moments are pretty great, but 
technically the film is a disaster. Okay. The editing, sound design, and acting are all a nightmare, but it looks pretty good because of course she was, you know, from a cinematographer background and the death scenes are really epic. Oh, really? My favorite one had a bunch of blobby squid monsters attack a guy as he tries to stab them, but he's kind of imagining this is happening. So he's just basically stabbing his, his body. It goes back and forth between there's a squid monster, but then it shows him and there's no squid monster. He just thinks it's there. He's stabbing it, but then it shows what's really happening. And it's a knife in his arm or whatever. Right. Oh, nice. Super bloody and really gross. Nice. Um, And the squid monsters are, are nasty and, and kind of great, you know? Oh, good. I mean, they're kind of low rent, but like kind of in a good way. You yeah, know? that sounds awesome. Yeah. There's a scene where a toxic waste fat explodes on someone's face and melts it. Oh, yes. Yeah. Shit. Toxic waste throwback. Uh-huh. There's nice. a scene where some giant goofy monster hands come out of a trash chute and pull a guy's head off. Oh, that's, that's great. It was really phenomenal. It kind of reeks of one of those movies that got a very small release in the last few grindhouse theaters in Times Square yeah. and then spent all of that money on a great VHS cover and made the rest of its money that way. Gotcha. If you have Amazon Prime, you can watch The Oracle for free. Really? Isn't that amazing? That is yep. amazing. I no, watched I guess it, it for free. And was it worth that? It was worth the free. free. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if it was worth the like $100 of Amazon Prime for a year, but it was worth the, the for free, free part. Yeah. You gotcha. Yeah. One of the reasons film people say the Oracle was such a mess is because at the same time she was filming it, she was also making another film, The Tenement, also from 1985. Really? I didn't know. Oh, see? It all comes together. Right. I had no idea. So you gave me The Tenement for Christmas last year, which is one of the reasons I wanted to discuss this episode. We watched it in October, right around the film festival. You had this movie for over a year. Before. And we watched it together. But Mm -hmm. then we didn't watch it together because I kept bugging you to watch it. Right. Do you remember anything? about it yeah it was these gang members that i think either the tenement or the people there narked them out to the police Mm -hmm. they busted their little gang area the gang members got out of jail i don't remember if one of their folks got killed or something but something happened and Mm -hmm. they got out and then they decided to go through the tenement block and just like kill everybody Mm -hmm. until the the residents finally started to fight back right yeah Yeah. that's that's the gist of it drug punks they're squatting in the basement of a bronx apartment building remember she was from the bronx originally so this was kind of like a you know like going back home for her yeah the tenants have had enough they call the cops and to arrest them but they're released and they come back to the tenement to get revenge but then the residents you know end up fighting bath and it's kind of a it's, it's a real bloodbath you yeah. know like it, in the movie yeah and it was actually one of the only films to ever get an x rating for violence only and she accepted the x rating so she didn't huh. try to recut it or whatever they get she was really surprised you know that it got an x rating huh. uh, but she was like i and i think <laughs> in the movie it says the movie that's too violent for a rating or something like that it says that like on the bottom of the nice. dvd box so she By used all that. white jury it was know. like that yeah know. she yeah. used it to her advantage that's awesome the tenement was their home their fortress a place of refuge from the savage streets now it's become a battlefield of rage madness and death If they want the billing, let's give it to them. The enemy is unfeeling and unstoppable. This is some sick revenge thing, man. They want to kill us. Do you understand that? They want to kill us. There's nowhere to turn. Nowhere to hide. And no way out. Now they've taken enough and they're fighting back. 
Some of the best scenes, a resident gets stabbed in the stomach by a pretty small knife and immediately blood starts pouring out of his mouth. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just like he gets a small stab and he's like, and blood comes shooting out of it. It's like, great. oh, that escalated quickly. My favorite is the refrigerator falling on somebody. Yes. Were you going to talk about that? Did I, I was. Yeah, it? It, was, it wasn't like a full refrigerator. It was like one of those like old ice boxes. Yeah. And a guy who had gotten a bottle smashed in his face previously by one of the gang members mm-hmm. pushes it down the stairs and it like falls on top of it was a woman wasn't it wasn't it the, I, one of them yeah the chick gang members do you remember when the kids took the boiling water and dumped it down the yeah, stairs yeah, and yeah. they're all like ah and they had the, the bed frame that was electrified. Mm-hmm. And they have that. Yeah, that That's right, great. yeah. And then the gang leader at the end, he gets stabbed with what I think was a TV antenna. And Something. then he gets struck by lightning, too, as kind of like a double I forgot about that whammy. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of like the last death. Like, it's a pretty badass movie. It is. Well, there's also a really disturbing rapey part, too. Mm-hmm. There was a woman that they broke into her apartment and straight up, like... I don't know if they gang raped her or they raped her with something. They, yeah. It was fucked up. It is. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a super fucked up movie. Right. Like tonally, it's not a happy film. I mean, no. I mean, yeah. It is the quintessential grindhouse trashy movie. Yeah. You know. One of the great things about it though, especially living in New York though, is it was really kind of a product of its time, especially when you look at something like, you know, it came out around the same time that like Street Trash came out. Yeah. That was New York back then. It was really Grimy and punk. terrible. Like everybody was like all multi gang. Multiculty, like punk gangs and yeah. stuff like that. It was drugs, and it was like we've got to keep them out of our buildings. And you know, right. the, it was families were living in these. The cops you know, didn't help you though, right? Really, exactly. Like you that. couldn't depend on that, and it was kind of vigilante. You know, yeah, vigilante type. justice. Yeah, yeah, but defending their apartment building from that or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed the movie and I, watched I it again, too. and just really, I, that's kind of like maybe the one good movie she made. Yeah, no. yeah. And, I mean, and good is a relative term, sure, but. Fun fact, I'm going to add that there's mm-hmm. other movies that I think took that plot, whether they meant to or not. There's certain elements of that in that movie, The Raid. Do you remember that foreign film? The Asian film. These cops are going to an apartment building trying to weed out these gang members. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to go and clear it, and they're getting resistance. So it's sort of like the inverse of yeah, that. Yeah, sure. It's cool. And then the latest Judge Dredd movie, just called Dredd, was the same thing. There was this apartment building these gang members owned, and they were terrorizing all the residents in there, and Judge Dredd and his trainee that was with him were stuck in there trying to get them out so they had to go through the different levels so again it was like a reverse of that but it was it was very it's like a futuristic tenement basically yeah. oh cool yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually pretty good yeah really yeah. interesting yeah she also made Blood Sisters in 1985 oh nice Prime Evil in 1987 I know Prime Evil mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah okay. I mean I, I remembered some of these movies from like you know VHS covers yeah. you know back in the video stores definitely yeah and Lurkers in 1988 <laughs> her final film was called Band from 1988 and according to her it was a rock and roll comedy that she and Walter made to basically launder some of the large sums of money they made from the past few horror films so they were very successful making horror films and you know they were making sweet sweet VHS money but they basically had made too much that year and so they had to make a shitty movie to lose money off of you know so that they could claim a A loss yeah but it was such a bomb and such a disaster it pretty much killed off their interest in film at that point sure he had said, great, let's go back to making horror movies. And she was just like, I don't want to spend any more money on this. It, it had kind of come to a natural end. So they decided to focus on Walter's sound studio, and it paid off big for them. Sears Studios did sound for Bjork, Bono and the Edge, oh, wow. Lou Reed, Patti Smith, Bob Dylan, Hull, David Bowie, 
Coldplay and even Yoko Ono from, you know, one of Roberta's first early movies. Films. Yeah. yeah. He did sound and she managed the studio. So that's kind of what they did after great. you know they finished making films. He hung all of her movie posters all throughout the studio and told stories of her films to all the musicians until his death in 2010. Wow. She's still there. She's still alive. She's still managing the studio with all of her posters reminding her every day of the mark that she and Michael left on Exploitation Film. That's excellent. How old is she now then? She is 70. 70, okay. Yeah. Not bad. So that's the Finlays, Sexploitation's first couple. Nothing about them. Me neither. I mean, even like once you gave me Tenement and I was like, oh, Roberta Finlay, I listened to the interview podcast of the Rialto Report and was kind of like, there's something here. I'm just not quite sure what it is. Yeah. But then after we started talking about snuff, started to put the pieces together and I was like, there's a story in here. Like, I'm not sure what it is, but. That's a deep cut. Yeah. I knew nothing of them and that's great. Snuff's not a good movie. Tenement's marginally better, but I like that whole story. I mean, I like they've really carved their way through basically all the types of movies we talk about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know? It was just so funny to me, too, just because as opposed to someone, you know, like Dave Friedman or Herschel Gordon Lewis, right. who were always out there trying to amp up their films and really trying to make all this money. Right. You know, William Castle, who's out there with his shitty movies and his gimmicks, you know, trying to sell them in person yeah. at yeah, theaters, yeah. selling his movies. They were just like, all right, made another shitty movie. That's in the can. Right. Take the flat fee and go on to make the next one. And, and they didn't like workmen. That was their job. Yeah. Yeah. They're it was like almost like collar filmmakers. They're yeah. just working through making these films, moving on. It was almost just like going to a factory for a shift you know yeah. being like well my punch in at nine i clock out at five o'clock right. and that's my job and I, and I do a fine job of it but my job is to crank out shitty sexploitation <laughs> hardcore and then horror movies right that's what i have to do to like make a living and in their golden years they retired to a recording studio yeah nice. so it was it was really great and you know it was kind of funny too because you know michael dies halfway in through the episode but in such an epic way you know right. and it's just like the fact that this story has like never really been told was sure. just really like fascinating to that me that is fascinating it's yeah. great I, I really enjoyed it I, it's always nice to get a topic i don't know shit about i mean there's you've done some i don't know a lot about right but you mentioned their names and actually you did earlier and I'm like who? Yeah no I, I know never anything. heard of them yeah. Yeah so that was great it's a wonderful episode. Good I'm oh, glad awesome. you liked it. Yeah. Well thanks everyone we will see you next week. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today along with pictures, videos, and additional resources as well as Sunday Slum Day our weekly recommendation for the best and sometimes worst films every Sunday night. If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter where we share out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. I watched it more than once. I'm not going to admit whether I did or not either.